2: Check out Moms Don't Have Time to Write on Medium. And of course, my new publishing company called Zivi Books. And now back to our daily author interview site and a quick hello from some of my kids.
0: Hi. Hi. Hello.
2: Enjoy the show. Amy Wilson is the author of When Did I Get Like This? The Screamer, The Warrior, The Dinosaur Chicken Nugget Buyer, and Other Mothers I Swore I'd Never Be. She is also the creator of Motherload, a one-woman show, which toured sixteen cities nationwide after its hit off Broadway Run. Amy is co-host of the comedy parenting podcast What Fresh Hell, Laughing in the Face of Motherhood, a top ten parenting podcast in Apple Podcasts with over four million downloads to date. Between them, Abby and her host Margaret Abels have six kids, ages seven to seventeen. Welcome, Amy. Thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books to discuss when did I get like this? The Screamer, The Warrior, The Dinosaur Chicken Nugget Buyer, and Other Mothers I Swore I'd Never Be. (laughs) Thank you so much for having me. This is such a thrill for me. I know that you know this since we've already done your podcast and everything, but I read your book when it came out, which you reminded me is in 2010. So I have that copy over there, which I should have pulled out.
1: Crazy? I'm and so now, honored.
2: <laughs> no, I loved it. At the time, I had like three-year-old twins. So I was in it with you. It was like right, right. then. And so I reread it now to get a refresher. And I was like, because, you know, my memory. I, I know what I've read, but then I can't remember what it, anything inside it. I but would I imagine.
1: I, you read all the time, right? Yes. But
2: anyway, I read it again with fresh eyes. And it was so funny to like, because I was so in the moment back then. Well, let me stop. Why don't you tell listeners a little bit about what your book's about? Although the subtitle is very revealing. Yeah. And and all of that.
1: So the book came out in 2010, as you said. And at the time when the book came out, my when I wrote the book, my kids were one, four, and and six. And I was really in it in the salt mine years, as I like to say, like, it's hard from the moment you get up until the moment you go to bed, like you you are using your hands, taking care of somebody. And I think things have changed since 2010 and things have not changed. And so what the book is about is it's a, it's a series of essays and it's about all the times that I started from the place of wanting what's best for my children and who, who doesn't want what's best for their children. Right, like of of course I want that, but then these sort of insidious messages we get, like, well, if you want what's best for your children, you have to start using these flashcards, you have to mill your own baby food, you know that kind of thing. So each chapter in the book, whether it's my birth plan or getting my kid into preschool or, you know, making mom friends, it would be something where I would always start saying like, okay, this time I am not overthinking this. I I am super chill. I am not going to fall for that this time. And then over and over again, I do. I think because a little bit, it's how I'm wired. But I also think society sort of makes us that way. I have sort of a, that's the BMI bonnet that I think society makes mothers crazy. And then it's like, why are you mothers so crazy? Well, (laughs) Because it was the assignment you told me to be. You told me to worry about every little thing. So that's what the book's about.
2: Amazing. Yeah. In the beginning, you said it doesn't affect fathers the same way because the marketing is all to moms. This manipulation that we need this particular product or else we won't be, and you made up some really funny examples. Like the whole book is so funny about how, well, do I need it? Do I not need this product? Well, of course I want to be good. Just like you were saying. And it's impossible to get away from the guilt when people are intentionally trying to guilt us into buying things for their own benefit. And as a result, now we're all
1: like a mess. (laughs) Yes. And I'm a researcher too. So this probably was even worse for me because yeah, like my spouse, when we were going into the delivery room, he didn't know that there was something called vitamin K eye drops that the baby was going to get in their eyes, you know, 90 seconds after the baby was born. And that that was either a must do or a must not do, depending on what website you were on that day. So, right. He he was, he avoided all of that because who would even care about that stuff? And I think there are mothers who are more blissfully like, I'm just going to go with the flow, but I needed to have the best right answer for each little thing, which is of course bonkers, but I needed to learn that the hard way.
2: And you guys talked about getting a doula and he was like, why would we need a doula? I can do this myself. And
1: there was that whole conversation. Yeah, all these- <laughs> I probably should have gotten a doula. I mean, he was great, but he also, you know, when, when you're in, you're in labor and they see you in pain, like they freak out a little bit and how, I think any partner would, right? How my partner reacted was, uh, I think you really need a turkey sandwich. He was super, super hungry and thirsty and had to keep leaving the room to get more food. <laughs> I think to leave the room, but yeah.
2: <laughs> oh my gosh, I also loved your whole segment on the doctor and the nurse, and your weight as you were gaining weight for each baby and each subsequent baby, and how they made you feel, and how the doctor kept saying, "Well, maybe not so many desserts," and you were like, "You said that last time," and <laughs> what you know, I already gave up desserts, and now I'm eating like some the equivalent of like some keto diet or whatever you were doing that was trendy at the time, and you're yes. like, "This is terrible."
1: Yes. Yes. I mean, if there's anybody who's listening to this, who happens to be you know, pregnant or about to be pregnant, I do feel like you will gain, like your body wants to gain weight. It is your body's assignment and you can spend 40 weeks as I did sort of, you know, digging your nails into the ground while it, it drags you towards maternity pants, or you can not worry about it and eat when you're hungry. And I gained the exact same amount of weight in the two pregnancies where I did each of those things. So that was a real eye opener for me. And this sort of yeah. This feel bad culture. I don't know why they care so much if you gain 38 pounds instead of 35 pounds, but they do. And it's something you just have to kind of be ready for and, and put a sort of shield around yourself. I'm not going to gain 85 pounds or maybe I will. And it won't be because I'm a bad person. It's because my body is, is going a little bonkers and it'll be okay. You see what I'm saying? You have to sort of, you have to come up with that reserve of reassurance for yourself, which is really hard when you're in a, a time in your life, when you're so off balance and unsure.
2: And it's also like the only thing you can control when you're pregnant. Like there's so much fear. Even the story you told about finding out about being pregnant fr- through the center and like not ever being able to sort of celebrate that,
1: right, and like- Right, right. I, I, I struggle with infertility with my first child and it's a long road. I mean, some other people's roads were longer, but if you go through that at all, you know, wanting to be pregnant, not being able to, it's extremely painful. And right, so when I finally got pregnant, that was right. It was the last thing I felt like, and thank God. I mean, that child is now nineteen and at college. But oh my gosh. finding out when I was pregnant with him, yeah, it was it was cautious. It wasn't exuberant.
2: Yeah, there was like no time to celebrate. Right, right. Although eventually you did, and you know, but even having that joy removed, all to say, there's so much anxiety at every step of the way, and what can you do but wait? Right, because everyone's like, you know, wait till this week, wait till that week but there's nothing you can really do. There's just all these things you can't do. And that's what you pointed out too. It's like the land of all the things, like how do you exist in a state of not doing a million things? Like what do right. you do then? So I feel like, I don't know, maybe food is like the one thing you can do and you can do right. But I don't know. And let it's you, quantifiable, right, yeah, exactly. from the outside.
1: Right. If I gained 31 pounds, I'm okay. And if I gain 33 pounds, I'm a bad person. It's something you can you can watch while you're sort of wondering what's going on in the factory inside.
2: I also think like you, I had three pregnancies. I have four kids, but I have twins, so. I feel like my comfort level with my changing body and the knowledge that it would go up and it would go down came over time. And I want to like share that, but you never can really internalize that maybe until you've gone through it once or twice. I know. anybody who tried to reassure me, I was like, no, I'm still going to be in my head about this
1: because I don't know what's going to happen. It was, that was sort of the whole point of my book. Like I really wanted people to be able to sort of jump the line, right? And I hope maybe they did, that maybe you started, you avoided 10% of the beating yourself up because you read about me doing it and thought, okay, I'll skip that part. I hope that that's true, but I do think you're right to a large extent, you just got to go through it to figure out like, okay, I was crazy when I did XYZ. No,
2: I think the book is great. And I, you know, will sing from the rooftops and try and tell people all the things I feel like I've learned. I, I, the instinct is to share and help. I'm just not sure how much people, it, it's, it's not just with this. I mean, it's really with anything. You know, you can prep people for grief. You can prep people for all sorts of things that will happen in life and they can kind of know it, but I think internalizing it. Well, anyway, I'm obviously of the school. Let's share and help people. Um, yeah. That's all we can do. But I, I do feel it's our responsibility in some way to help in case we help one person, maybe then it's better than no people.
1: Right. And I do think that's much better than our mom's motherhood is that there is a sort of people will bear witness to all kinds of things. And you do realize that you're not alone. There's a lot of different ways that moms can connect and have that connection during a time, which is to say like, okay, during the pandemic, okay, like this is the hardest time. Anybody who's home with little kids right now, you are doing something harder than anything I ever had to do And my kids were little. But there is this opportunity for connection in other ways, which is, I think, helpful.
2: I think about that too. My kids are all, right? you know able to put on their clothes and all those things. It's less the hands-on. And I'm like, what would I have done? I mean, I would have just done it because we all you have just done do whatever has happened and do one day at a time. But yeah, there's a lot of stress, even with not even having a vaccine for the younger kids and having that right. anxiety on top of the anxiety of everything else. I mean.
1: Yeah, yeah. And the the mothers who feel left behind, you know, mm-hmm. in, in this conversation, like, okay, guess we don't let it rip. Everybody should just get back to their lives. Like, well, wait a minute. I have a two-year-old yeah. and I have... Kept him in a plastic bubble for the last two years, and now you're telling me, oh well, like it, it's it's a really it doesn't make any sense. We're asking them to make sense of something that doesn't make sense. That's true,
2: and then of course none of us know the long term even emotional effects this will all have. And then I'm like, does this is this gonna end? What if my kids have to wear <laughs> masks the entire time? Uh, I don't know that they're in school <coughs> anyway. Let's bring the room down, right? To be, I'm, I'm really sorry. <laughs> uh. The, the, we're all circled the warrior on your cover here. Yes. That one, that's me. I'll just worry for everybody. (laughs) So in addition to writing this book, which was absolutely fabulous and just as relevant today as it was then you turned this into a one woman show and took it around the country. went, it started off Broadway. You went national,
1: right? Tell me about that experience. It was so crazy. It was terrific because, uh, I went to about 16 different cities, And if I was going for longer than like a day or two, I would bring my baby with me. My youngest was learning to walk while we were doing this show. So if if I had to go for a week, I'd bring my babysitter and we would, you know, we'd all be hanging out in the hotel together. It was such a privilege to perform there. I mean, I've performed for lots of different groups. I have this sort of past life as an actor, but there is nothing like a room full of moms on a night out, right? (laughs) They're with their friends, they, they got their own babysitter, right? Maybe they've had a glass of rosé or two. They are ready to laugh and have a good time. And as I would be telling these stories, just looking out in the audience, because it was a one-woman show, so I'm looking at the audience the whole time, watching like somebody reach across two or three people and like punch your friend in the <laughs> arm, like, that's you. She's talking about you right now. The <laughs> woman being like, I know, I know. And the two of them laughing, just a sort of shared experience. It was such a... a privilege. It was so exciting. And and a one person show is a total, you know, high wire act. You get out there and it was just me and the person in the booth playing the sound cues. And if you forget that where you are, you just got to dig yourself out. There's no other... When you're on stage with another actor and you forget your lines, you lock eyes and there's just something, you know, you you communicate. And the other person is like, weren't you going to tell me about that thing <laughs> from that time? They can, they can lead you back to the path when you're out there alone. It's scary, but it, it's exhilarating as well. Wow. So did you
2: have a script you followed or did you improvise it
1: time or I did. No, it, it was a was a very tight script. And it was interesting, interesting you say that because I looked at sort of Jerry Seinfeld's stand-up. I, I mean he's just very funny, but there's also something extremely conversational about the his work. And I think most stand-ups, they sound John Mulaney is another one. They sound like they're just thinking of this right now for the first time, right? There's a there's a cadence, there's a approach, but it's very carefully calibrated. And so this, this was like that. It was a script that was down to the, you know, word. And I was always letter perfect about it because that made me feel safer on stage. I actually very rarely diverged from the script, including when like, you know, somebody walked in late or whatever. I didn't, I didn't stop the show. I wasn't, it wasn't a stand up act. I wasn't engaging with the audience, but it was very letter perfect. And at the same time, I realize you get more laughs the more you are really, you are this person. You are Alice in Wonderland going to the prenatal class for the first time. And the more the actor on stage can be experiencing it for the first time, the funnier it is.
2: I saw Jerry Seinfeld twice at the Beekman, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Because I took my kids back. Anyway, I was like, well, I'm sure it'll be different this time. (laughs) <laughs> and it was like the exact same show which was still hilarious i still cried laughing but yes to your point it was
1: yeah yeah it's very yeah, yeah it only seems off the cuff it's a very it's nailed down yeah that's that's me that's my style i love that wow but you're not still doing it right no yeah. no it was a great experience and then you know what kind of derailed the tour or sort of you know brought it to a to a premature end maybe was the recession of 2008 um mm-hmm. that was do you remember the birdie mate Bernie Madoff days. I mean, yes. there were so yes. many theaters that I was going to perform at who reached out to my agent and said, like, we're canceling our entire season. We're really sorry. So, that, so it, kind of, it kind of came up against that. And then, I, I mean, I loved it. I did that show a couple hundred times. And so I guess I could have tried to pick it back up two years later, but there is a point in your life, in my life, when I kind of think... Have I gotten out of this what I will have gotten out of this? And I think that was true for that, that I wouldn't have learned anything more from doing it 50 more times, even though it was super fun. It was, of course, hard
0: work, too. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told. About the iconic Atlanta Street Party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.
2: Hey grown-ups, the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Wait, back to the acting for two seconds.
1: I read that you had a regular role on Felicity. Is that true? And yes. Who were, who
2: were you? Yes. I, I was that re- show.
1: I was recurring on Felicity. There's regular and there's recurring. So oh, regular is okay. you're on every week. So I did, there were a couple of shows where I was on every week 20 years ago. Felicity, I was recurring, which is, okay. So, oh my gosh, her friend who is African-American had an affair with a professor. Okay. Are you, are okay. you? Okay. Uh, are you that I, level of Felicity? Uh, um, I don't Wendy remember that. I was the actress, but anyway, okay. it was a, that, that was a plot line for her in a season that she was having an affair with the professor. I was a college student who had had an affair with the same professor. Oh. And I came to, you know, warn her off in a couple of different episodes. Interesting. And it is, it is funny out of that show. I mean, it was a great show, but that show out of everything I've done is the one that, Women of a certain age, right? Oh, sorry, Felicity. (laughs) Yes, (laughs) I'm dating myself here. Yes, (laughs) although although kids, they were finding it's on some streaming platform. So, I'm including myself and women of a certain age, by the way. Just that you remember Felicity, right? (laughs) The Ally McBeal, that kind of yes, yes, thing. yes. Oh my gosh, I
2: literally can like feel the couch I was sitting on at college with watching Ally McBeal with my two girlfriends. <laughs> I can like, I'm immediately when you say the words in it, right then. So
1: it, it was. I mean, there was so much less TV then. So mm-hmm. Ally McBeal and Felicity, they were shows for us. They were yes. shows with a young woman as the central character, and she wasn't just trying to. She wasn't just chasing boys. It right. was. They were. They were revolutionary. I'm sure that seems silly now, but they were.
2: Hmm.
1: I'm glad I was following a revolutionary
2: pattern. <laughs> I feel good now about all my things. We were watching
1: revolutionary television. Don't you understand?
2: <laughs> Love it. Thank you, CW,
1: <laughs> whatever it was on.
2: Okay, so then fast forward when did you start What Fresh Hell the
1: Podcast? That was five years ago. So after that tour, I worked on a second book. I have pitched a second book, sort of a version of when did I get like this? That was for sort of seven to 14 year olds. Like my experience of that stage of parenting, which I think is a very interesting sort of liminal stage, right? My experience of that stage of parenting was very much that people were like, just you wait, you know, you'll (laughs) see. that That sort of thing, which always kind of freaked me out and I didn't understand what they meant. So that's what the book was about. Couldn't sell it because the publishing industry sort of felt like that's not a, age group that there are books about. So I was sort of like, how about this one? But there, there wasn't proof of concept in the marketplace that books for that middle age. So I didn't know what to do with that and was working on some other projects. And then an old friend of mine, Margaret Ables, who had been head of video at Nick Mom, Nickelodeon had a channel called Nick Mom. Do you remember that? It was I on do, at night yep, for a while. Yep, I do remember. And she was with that and then that ended. And she called me and said, let's, like, let's have coffee. And we went out for coffee and she said, so I have this idea, like, what do you think if, why don't I do a podcast with me? And it's like a punchline now, but at that time I was like, a podcast? So I, I listened to Serial and that was about it and thought about it. And I had been sort of like telling myself in the universe, like, I'm tired of working by myself. I'm tired of working on a book that didn't sell. I want to collaborate. I'm going to work with somebody. And I had a collaboration with a guy that just didn't work for me because I ended up we are doing what he wanted to do more than what I wanted to do, which is all on me. But I was like, okay, my next collaboration is going to be with a female mm-hmm. and something I want to do. And then, she, you know, then this kind of, what do you think if we try to podcast together? And I said, okay. You know, and we bought microphones and figured it out. And when we started, so we have about 400 episodes now. When we started, I did not know her kids' names or ages. I had a vague sense. But it's funny now because people assume, like, she so started a podcast with your best friend. And she's become, of course, one of my best friends. But at the time when we started, it was, it was almost like we were interviewing each other. Like we're mm-hmm. talking to each other right now. And I think it, I think it really helped the show because we would pick a topic. Should you help kids with their homework or should you just, you know, throw up your hands and, and let them not finish. And we would sit down to record. And I really wasn't sure what she was going to say. Now I could probably predict pretty well and vice versa. But at the time I had no idea what she would say. And it just meant it, it kept it very fresh, the conversations. Kept what fresh hell fresh. Kept what fresh hell fresh. Yeah. What fresh hell is something that Dorothy Parker used to say when she, you know, she was a humorist about hundred years ago. She died, but she used to answer the the telephone or the the door supposedly and say, what fresh hell is this? And (laughs) Margaret's mom, who died a couple of years ago, she used to say that, you know, walking around her 1970s, you know, cuckoo life with four little kids at home. What fresh hell is this? When she walked around the corner. So when Margaret came to me that that day and said, I think we should start a podcast and I think it should be called What Fresh Hell Laughing in the Face of Motherhood. I mean, it really happens like that, right? That you're just, the first title is the title. And I'm like, okay, sounds good. We never look back. I love it.
2: Wait, so whatever happened with your book for seven to 14 year olds? I happen to have four Uh, of those right now.
1: (laughs) It's it's sitting on the shelf. I mean, I, I didn't write the manuscript. I have the proposal. So it's sitting on the shelf. And it's funny because... Now, of course, I would probably write something a little different if I was going to write it out because, of course, now I do have the perspective of a 19-year-old. At the time, I was really writing from, I'm not ready mm-hmm. to teach them how to drive. I'm not ready to have them leave the nest. I'm not ready to talk to my kids about sex, you know, and of course, now I've done all those things.
2: <laughs> well, we should talk with, if you have, I don't know. I mean, I'm writing zippy books and I love that. Yes. you write. And if you want to talk about stuff projects. I would love that. That would, would be really that. cool. I would love it. Okay. So we'll offline about that after. <laughs> yeah, that'd be great. Amazing. So what are you working on now? You have the podcast. You're about to write this book for me. No, I'm kidding.
1: Yeah. <laughs> what the, else is going on? The world on? is ready for my new parenting book. I, I, I wrote a musical in the last couple of years, the book for a musical. I am, I am a somewhat musical person, but uh, two friends of mine from Yale who are much more in the musical theater world are writing a, were writing a musical. I had sort of developed an idea about the wellness industry mm. and it was it's a small musical about the wellness industry with an all female cast and they wanted a, a woman to write the book in other words the scenes of the musical when everything that happens when they're not singing and they came to me and I said I don't I would love to do this I haven't really done this before and they were like don't worry we'll teach you so it I, it's in process it's just getting ready for it's sort of its first it's done. It's ready for its first readings, which in a play is like, it's done. It's done enough to do it full out, full through around a table. Right. And then you say like, oh, this, that part doesn't work at all. or This thing doesn't come across. We're, we're ready for that. So I'm really excited for those next steps. And, and I, and I really do like collaborating. I like working with, with partners. It's there's accountability. There's also immediate feedback. You can tell if what you're doing is working.
2: Yes. I think it's finding the right partner for a show, yeah. for a team. Yeah. And then it can be amazing. It can be really yeah. amazing.
1: And then the podcast itself. So so our podcast has been around for five years. We started a podcast sort of under our umbrella for younger kids called Toddler Purgatory. That came out, that launched in the spring of last year, and that's still around. So we're overseeing that. And we have this sort of kernel of an idea that we're going to start bringing other, more podcasts under our wing and run their advertising mm-hmm. because... There is a real burgeoning opportunity in podcast advertising. And not just for the... like. Of course, there is for Joe Rogan, but there's a lot of smaller independent podcasters who are women who have an all-woman listening audience. I'm sure yours is is largely female, not all female, but largely. And that's an incredible advantage in podcasting to have the demographic your listeners be, the people who advertisers want to reach the most. So I'm becoming like a, a podcast advertising nerd which I couldn't have foreseen but I, I love it it's really you, interesting. Is your show on a network now? No, we sort of are our own network and we work with Got a bunch it. of these different agencies. And so we have resisted being becoming part of a larger network because we're we're doing it. It's working. It's working That's without yeah without the network. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah, I'm on the ACAS saying.
2: network, which I love, but for the
1: first three years or something. I did it myself. You did so. it yourself. It's a lot of work. And, and it is nice to have... Yeah, there is nice to sort of hand it over. But yeah, we're realizing that having having a group of people that, that reach moms... You know, it's funny because the, the the parenting book, like writing parenting or creating content about parenting, I think is so crucial. And I love the connections we make with each of our listeners. It's harder to make that seem relevant or important to the larger world, mm-hmm. right? Like it's, it's sort of in a very narrow column, I think. And so that can be frustrating. Like you can't get, you can't get the larger world to pay attention to because it's, it's just a parenting podcast. Therefore it must not be very good, right? It must be a bunch of mommies complaining, but it is in the advertising that I found out, like, no, actually, I mean, I know we make a good product and actually we're reaching a really, uh, moms are moms are important moms are powerful and by by honing our content just for moms we're we're making something more powerful not less that's exciting
2: so i got advice when i started my podcast about how limiting it would be that i had the word moms in it and i was like i mean if i could cover that entire demographic i would feel good about myself i mean there yes. are a lot of moms i mean of course my show is not just for moms much less i think than yours like i, yes. I really that's just sort of the platform and but i was like yeah i'm cool with that I, you know, there are a lot of moms out there.
1: (laughs) Right. Who are looking for connection and content and something that's just for us. And, and somebody to say, I know, I see you, I know exactly what you're doing. And and I think, yeah, I think there's a lot of, a lot of worth and value in that. I agree. Yeah. Similar strategies here, I guess.
2: (laughs) (laughs) What advice would you give to
1: aspiring authors? I guess like, so, so I had this, the book that I wrote is sort of a memoir, you know, funny with a point. Everything I try to do is funny with a point. It isn't just comedy and it isn't, you know, reported nonfiction, but you're getting something out of it. And back in the day when I was a full-time performer and I was writing solo shows, I always wrote my own material because that was how I got somewhere. That's how I got agents and people to see me. And so I wrote a solo show, not Motherload, an earlier one called A Cookie Full of Arsenic. And it was in the HBO comedy arts festival in Aspen, which was amazing. And then HBO gave me like a first look deal for two years and stuff. And and I was working on something else. So I was, you know, creating ideas to pitch. And I said, well, I'm from a small town, you know, I'm from Scranton, Pennsylvania, which is sort of a typical small town. and It's kind of quirky and interesting. And It really shaped who I am. And I think I spent a lot of time, you know, trying to like, not seem like I'm from Scranton, but of course I am. And, you know, I think there's something universal in that, I guess. And I get, and you know, this HBO executive was like, okay, why are you telling me this? He said, usually when I go to see one person shows the difference between the ones that are indulgent and the ones that are affecting is that they know why they're telling me this. So Wick, why are you telling me you're from Scranton? Why are you, you know, telling me that mothers are sold their own insufficiency? So they buy more things. I think that has really helped me and that's become sort of the guiding principle for when I write. So it isn't just like motherhood is crazy. And here's some essays about how motherhood is crazy. Like, yes. Why are you telling me this? If you can answer that question in your writing, then it's ready. Then it's ready to be, to be written or to be pitched or whatever.
2: I love that. Why are you telling me this? That's great. Great advice. Uh-huh. <laughs> right. I'm gonna have to apply that to my own writing
1: <laughs> like I don't why am I telling people this I don't right I know right. No, it's a, it's right you really have to unpack it it's not something you can answer in a day but I think it has made the stuff that I do better this musical or this book or whatever I can answer that question and so hopefully that makes it more worthy of of somebody's time if they pick it up I think it's different for fiction yeah yeah although even fiction I suppose that that's probably true I I, I wrote one novel and it just didn't really work. What I learned from writing a novel is that writing a novel is really hard and it's not for everyone. Yeah. I learned that too. (laughs)
2: Life is is long, so who knows?
1: Hats off to you, (laughs) novelists.
2: Well, failed novelists. Amy, thank you so much. This was so much fun. And uh, I really appreciate your coming on. And tell everybody how to find you. Where are you on Instagram and all that? Oh yeah. All right. So
1: yeah. WhatFreshHellPodcast.com is where you can find my podcast. You can listen to it anywhere you listen to podcasts, but that's our website where you can find all the players. And we are on all the social media as at WhatFreshHellCast, except on Twitter where we're WhatFreshMedia.
2: Okay. Amazing. All right. Thank you, Amy.
1: Thanks, Ivy. All right.
2: Have a great, have a great day. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books.